In this episode, we wade out there with Jason Randall from Viroqua, Wisconsin. Jason grew up learning to fish from his father. After serving in the Army and attending college as a biology major, he worked briefly in the hatchery and fishery business, which helped influence the scientific approach he takes to fly fishing and trout. Jason credits the generosity of his many fly fishing mentors with helping him learn and progress over the years, and is the reason he values the educational aspect of the sport so much today. Jason has been a teacher in fly fishing for decades, has written several fly fishing books, and was the trout feature writer for American Angler Magazine. We discuss Jason's scientific approach to fly fishing, the specific adjustments he makes based on water temperature, sky cover, sun angles, and water clarity, as well as presentation techniques for accomplishing what Jason describes as the three goals of nymphing. Welcome to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Shemchuk. At Wade Out There, we believe fly fishing is special, but not elite, and that anyone can become a great fly fisher if they are willing to go, learn, and teach. Join me as I talk with other fly fishermen and women about their unique journeys into fly fishing, the rivers they fish, and the tactics and philosophies they practice. For those who can never leave the river in their hearts, this podcast is dedicated to helping you make the memories that keep us all coming back to wait out there. Welcome, Jason. Thanks for being on the Wait Out There podcast. Oh, thanks, Jason. It's great to talk about fly fishing. Just two Jasons sitting together talking about fly fishing. Drinking coffee. Drinking coffee. Mine's decaf, though, so we won't, we won't, uh, I don't know if I want to admit that on the podcast. I won't pass judgment. I guess I just did. I just lost half my listeners, but um, yeah, I'm excited to talk to you about the Driftless region to get another perspective on that fishery because I think it's fascinating and the kind of scientific approach that you take to it, as well as I I love talking tactics. So I I really am excited to get in the weeds a little bit on presentation and dry flies and nymphing and all that stuff. Also, you're a pilot and you served in the army for a little bit and uh, I don't want to get too far into it, but it's always a pleasure to talk to a veteran and it's cool to talk to another pilot. And I wonder, are you out there cruising around in your plane, scouting out streams and stuff? I think I would be. A little bit of aerial reconnaissance. Yeah, I wasn't a, a combat fighter pilot like you were, but uh, it's a passion too. I love it. You know, it's just, it's fun to get up and see the sunrise from 5,000 feet. Yeah, how how long have you been flying? Just about three or four years. Okay, so it's fresh. Does any of the freshness or newness of it like compare to when you started fly fishing? Is there any of that kind of like uh, everything is new and shiny and I have so much to learn type thing? <laughs> well, I think you always have a lot to learn. And that's one thing I like about flying. And that's certainly one of the reasons I fell in love with fly fishing too early on. It's just a you never stop learning. If, if you stop learning, you are at that point the best angler you'll ever be. That's right. Yeah. We, we, t- we talked about that a lot in the fighter squadron for sure. Were you in the, and I don't, and I want to talk to you more about that later on, but I want to ask too, I want to know about this army experience. When, when you started in the army, were you fly fishing before that? And during that, it's obvious that you fly fished after that, but I'm wondering if you did better off than me when you were serving because I <laughs> I didn't do awesome when I was in the Air Force fly fishing. I did 
a, a fair amount, you know, here and there, but I'm wondering if that was a burden for you. Well, I had a couple of rough deployments. I was uh, a couple of tours in Central America and there wasn't much fishing down there at that point. But I grew up fishing with my dad and you know, I learned by standing next to him as so many anglers have and was just blessed to have a, a father that took the time and, and taught me and introduced me to the outdoors, spent a lot of time with me. I remember fishing trips when I was uh, barely old enough to remember anything. That was special. It's an opportunity I think uh, so many of us do enjoy. I learned fly fishing later on after the Army and after I graduated college. Uh, I went into, uh, uh, right after I graduated with my bachelor's in biology, I went into veterinary school and graduated as a veterinarian many, many years ago. Um, after that, I trained in uh, fish health and medicine. I wanted to work in the in the hatchery and fishery business, but then I never really did. I, I had some experience in the hatchery uh, business that wasn't really what I was looking for. So I gained a lot uh, in that educational process, learned a lot about trout, and that I still use all the time. And uh, But I learned fly fishing from, from other mentors who took the time to introduce me to this sport that was uh, seemingly very complicated and, and sometimes overwhelming. And they put a lot of time and effort into me, and, and uh, it really reinforced the need for mentorship in the sport to me, and why I think I have pursued uh, an educational track in fly fishing. Do you think that's uh, ch- more challenging today or less challenging? Well, I think it's changed. Uh, when I first started in fly fishing education, uh, most of us were writers, and uh, I wrote for numerous uh, magazines and was a feature writer, uh, the trout feature writer for American Angler for six or eight years. And, you know, we wrote books. We did uh, a lot of uh, in-person presentations and appearances and lectures and things like that. But now I think the Internet has really opened the door a lot. And it's had a lot of benefits. There's a lot of pluses that come with that. A lot of people learn a tremendous amount on the Internet. But... It hasn't replaced mentorship in my mind as being a cornerstone in our sport. And I think finding a good mentor can really augment that other educational avenue. Yeah, I think we were talking before the show all the times in my life when I really progressed at fly fishing. I can point back to a time when I was fishing with someone who's at least slightly better or a lot better than myself. Well, that's all. there's always somebody better. Um, and when I started fishing, I fished with people who were a lot better than I was. And uh, people that, you know, just maybe somebody you met on the stream that, that um, was doing really well and you were struggling and you walked up and say, hey, you know, you're catching a lot of fish. Yeah, maybe you could just share a little bit of that knowledge with me. And I had so many people that would not only take the time to show you something, would give you a couple of flies to do it with and then put you right on their spot and, and, and uh, help you. And that's a, a real blessing in our sport. So much willingness to share and, and uh, mentors that uh, um, that influenced me, that shaped me. Uh, some of my early mentors were Darren Sakis, uh, George Custom, um, Bob Nicholson, people um, that were known in the, especially in the Michigan streams where I began and took, you know, took the time to help me 
learn how to cast. And sometimes those lessons were painful, um, but um, it was uh, it was part of that journey. Did you do you think that that is a good way to find mentors? Because sometimes I think people are afraid or intimidated or just don't think it's like etiquette to, to go up to someone on the stream. But it sounds like what I'm hearing you say is that that was a, one of the ways that you found many of your mentors is just kind of stream side or parking lot or conversational out in the, you know, out in the environment. Well, that's true. And there were people that I knew beforehand that, that, uh, told me about fly fishing and introduced me to the sport that I knew ahead of time. And I would always be careful approaching someone I didn't know on the stream. Yeah, maybe just start off uh, with a casual, hello, good morning, um, you're doing great kind of thing, and, and let the conversation develop. I certainly wouldn't interrupt their fishing um, to stand right at their elbow and say, hey, let me have your rod. <laughs> Help me, but help me. Help me, help, help, I'm drowning. Uh, no, but, you know, I think if you do it respectfully with courtesy, um, I think that's that really goes a long way in our sport. And it, it applies to uh, all levels of our sport, too. I met some of my other mentors um, later on in my journey, and, and uh, their interest and in, in, uh, help to me was immeasurable. People like Lefty Cray and... And Jamarowski and, and uh, Bob Clauser, those are people that uh, I fished with and that has helped me develop and grow and made uh, available opportunities, all those types of things. And you, it's a debt you can't pay to them, but you can certainly pay it to the next person. Yeah, you said uh, three things there that I want to circle back to a little bit. And I think the first is emotional intelligence is maybe how I would describe that a little bit of, you know, just having some situational awareness when you're around other people. And you can kind of tell if someone doesn't want to be bothered or they don't, you know, like you can tell, like this is not a person that is going to, you know, you can tell from that initial hello. <laughs> yeah. Or nod or they just their head. Situational awareness. Awareness. Now I know you're you're not only a pilot, but you're military too. Essay. <laughs> Have some essay, Jason. Come on. That's it, man. You got to give me a sip, rep. Um, <laughs> yeah, yeah, I think that's, that's important. It. That's it. You got to know and read read the person. Yeah, and then the other thing is, you bring up the community, and that's something that I, as much as I think that there's people that are not, you know, that don't want to, and it, and to be fair, if somebody's out there and they're fishing and, you know, it doesn't mean they don't want to be a mentor. Maybe they just, you know, they just don't want to be, they don't want to have that experience at that time or moment or whatever. And, and fishing is a personal thing. So I totally get that. And I'm that way sometimes myself. Uh, but the more that I interact with the fly fishing community, the more I believe that the majority of people are the, uh, the other side of that coin, which is like more than happy to be able to, to help, um, and even streamside, you know, I mean, uh, depends on where you're fishing and stuff, but I, I really feel like reaching out to other folks is a good way to, uh, learn or at least get directed to the, the right resources. And those, you know, you do that two or three or four or five times. And now you, you might get one or two mentors in there that actually can help you. And I actually think social media is a, is a way to do that as well, which is kind of cool that you can do that 
not personally, so it's not quite the same, but I've talked to a lot of people that have reached out to folks, you know, over the, the internet and Facebook and Instagram and, and have developed relationships and then, and then gone fishing and, and learned on the stream too. So I wonder your thoughts on that. If you think that that's a good thing. I do. Our, our sport from top to bottom is, is, is very open and inviting. Um, and I was really overwhelmed as I grew in this sport, how accessible and approachable people are and people that were renowned celebrities in our sport would take the time to answer an email or uh, would talk with you at a fly fishing show or something like that and so willing to share their knowledge and the thing that I really enjoy um, is that when when you get um, experienced anguish together uh, the conversation especially around a beer at the end of the day or a glass of wine or a scotch or whatever it is it's it's you can learn a tremendous amount and, and I, i'm blessed to be able to fish with some of the best anglers in the world and they all share a common trait which is uh, enthusiasm uh, and a willingness to learn eagerness and if they the conversation you know shows that uh, man you're, you're doing something that, that uh, i don't do what are you doing they're all ears. They're like sponges. We're, we're all soaking it in. You know, we're, it's a bunch of life learners. Yeah. It's a selfless relationship, but also, I mean, if you think about it, that's how you're going to learn too. So if, if you surround yourself with those types of people, you're going to be able to get the benefit as well. You're sharing information or you're, you're helping. And then maybe you now you pick something up from someone else as well. And that goes back to what we were talking earlier about fishing with someone who's a little bit better than you. That's a great way to start to learn from them. But also I know that the guys I fished with picked up stuff from me as well. And I think that sometimes we forget that, that you have information as well. Even if it's, Hey, I, they really turned on when I switched to red, you know, red zebra midge or, or, you know, I didn't catch a single fish until, until I fished the riffles and that that's something that, you know, nobody has it wired immediately right out the gate. I know from talking to plenty of people on the show that everybody's going out there trying to figure, you know, solve that problem today. Well, that's a mark of a good angler is constantly challenging, constantly asking questions, observation, uh, and, and, uh, responding to that, uh, that, uh, observe whatever it is um, I think are the hallmarks of good anglers they're always uh, questioning they're always adapting um, and they take note of what's happening uh, so that they can apply that to the next time whether it's something like water temperature whether it's color whether it's sky condition all these things play a huge role I think oftentimes water temperature is one of the most uh, underappreciated um, data point that we can use. Uh, water temperature determines everything from where trout are in the stream to their level of feeding assertiveness to food availability. Um, you know, all these things are related to water temperature. And I think that's a good starting uh, point for, for every time I visit the stream. Yeah. It's something that I've started to do more of now that I'm fishing more regularly out in Utah is at least take the time to kind of go through. I, so I'm, I have like, I'm a checklist guy. So I have, like, <laughs> I'm not a, I have a bit of a mental checklist, you know, and I don't, I wouldn't say I always run it, but it's, you know, there's things. And actually 
it's not exactly the same, but it, it, it is reminiscent of my situation brief that I would give when I'm flying, you know, talk about weather, wind, sun, angle, moon, illumination. Oh yeah. Those types of things. And then there's other things in there that I won't get into, but they relate to clarity and water and temperatures. So yeah. those, I have that kind of built in mental checklist. It's just a matter of whether I take the time to use it, which I think has a lot to do with whether or not I'm slowing down enough and taking the time and then and chilling out. And I find that when I do that, I enjoy it more as well because I really, I really am problem solving then. I'm not just fishing. I'm really saying, okay, what is the problem? And if you don't define the problem, it's hard to solve it. And so you just go and say, well, these flies worked yesterday, so I'm going to do this. It's hard to say that you're really problem solving. And maybe you do that because you know it's going to work. But I think that I enjoy myself more now when I am able to kind of look at, and and I'm, I don't have all the answers either, but it, at least I'm trying, I'm looking at the birds and the bug activity and, and a lot of the things you mentioned. But one of the great things about this show is it gets to talk to people like you and you get to tell me all the, well, this is what the water temperature is. This is what you should be doing. And this is those types of yeah. things. So this is perfect for me. It's, you know, there's a lot of a systematic approach to fly fishing as well. And if you, if you want to apply that sense of logic to solving that puzzle, um, you'll find that your success rate goes way up. And just knowing things like, you know, the phase of the moon, you know, if the moon can move the tides, it's going to affect um, stream the rivers as well and, and fish feeding behavior. Um, so I usually have a pretty good grasp on, on when those peaks are going to occur during the day's fishing, you know, based on uh, the movement of the moon. Uh, angle of the sun. There's a lot of things based on water temperature in the, in the spring creeks. I like to fish in. Uh, we could see a diurnal or daily fluctuation of 10 to 12 degrees, um, where the streams really cool down on, on uh, you know, especially on clear nights where they radiate all their heat off the outer space, and then they could gain uh, by late afternoon. They could gain you know, that 10 or 12 degrees back, and what that yeah. does to the fish feeding behavior and and the, the food that they eat, the insects, their activities, all those things. There's a lot of synchronicity in, uh, in Mother Nature and streams particularly. And uh, the more you know, you know, the, the better you are, the very quick you are to solve that puzzle. But nothing really replaces time on the water. And, and uh, no matter how much you, you read or you learn or you watch uh, YouTube or listen to podcasts, uh, there's nothing that uh, will, will help your education progress faster than picking up that rod and going to the stream. I agree with that. Uh, I think time on the water is important and, and the most important thing, really. I do think also that there's there's ways to optimize your time on the water and that if you're going out there armed with some of the knowledge or if you're going out there with a mentor, you have some sort of purpose or just more of a, an idea than I think your time on the water for me is more valuable, I guess. I, I, I yeah. don't think it replaces time. I don't think you can, there's no shortcut, but I think that the more you learn and you go out there, I think things start to click a little bit faster. You start to identify, okay, yeah, that makes sense. It's, you know, it's cloudy now and you know, the fish behavior has changed or it's super cold and the fish locations have changed and, and those types of things versus, just figuring that out over time. Like, you know, if you kind of know ahead of time that 
I should expect these types of things or I should look for these types of things and be observant. I think that's helpful. Yeah, you're right. I want to get into it. I want to talk about the driftless region and I want to, I want to talk about, you, you mentioned a bunch of stuff there with temperatures and sky cover and, and I talked about my checklist a little bit, but I wonder if we can talk first a little bit about what makes the driftless special for you and then, and then dive a little bit more into the scientific approach that you have to that fishery in the spring creeks versus big rivers. Well, sure. I think that the driftless is a geological joke. It really is unique. The term geologically is called karst, K-A-R-S-T, which is very similar to uh, maybe south central Pennsylvania. Uh, a lot of people that come from out there uh, are reminded of their home waters when they visit uh, the driftless streams of Wisconsin, Minnesota, and Iowa. Uh, but the, um, the, the name driftless comes from the fact that during the last ice age, 10,000 or so years ago, there was two massive glaciers, the Green Bay and the Des Moines glaciers collided along that Mississippi River drainage that we see today, but they never encroached into the driftless area. So they never um, ground the terrain completely flat or mostly flat. Um, and then as they receded, um, the rest of the, the area was uh, received the glacial drift, which is rich soils and, and a lot of mineral and organic material uh, that the farmers enjoy as, uh, as good farms uh, land now. But that glacial drift, because the glaciers never did cover the driftless area, they never received that glacial drift. So the name is driftless because of the lack of glacial drift. And that's a geological name. It's not a fly fishing name. It has nothing to do with the drift of your, of your fly. <laughs> <laughs> we're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about yeah. that later, but right now we're talking geology and science. All right. Yeah. So that karst geology is full of springs and, and aquifers and, and limestone and, and uh, uh, sandstone bluffs and carved ravines and coolies where there's uh, beautiful clear water streams that are spring fed. I think that the driftless streams and spring creeks in general are a great place to learn. They're very technical, um, you know, very much emphasizes the quality of presentation, uh, approach to the stream, stream craft, stealth, all those things come into play. And I think uh, it makes such a good teaching environment because everything you learn on a small spring creek, you can take to a larger river uh, and, and apply that. But not everything that you learn from larger rivers can translate to small spring creeks. Not everything, not everything will, will work on, on that small water. What are some examples of that before I, I ask you a geological question? <laughs> okay. Well, you know, I think just, just from the beginning, the approach to the water is different. Uh, you have to be so cognizant of, of uh, spooking the trout. Um, they're going to be um, oftentimes in a very, what we call a low confident lie, meaning that uh, they may be feeding in a position, um, but they feel vulnerable, they feel exposed, and so they're very unapproachable. Um, so stream craft is important. Uh, sometimes you've got to come in low and, and uh, use streamside vegetation uh, for cover, whereas a larger body of water, larger river stream, uh, you can, it's more forgiving. Um, I think uh, then your presentation, uh, you don't have maybe more than one or two shots uh, to get the presentation right on small water. 
I think larger water is, is a little more forgiving in that respect as well. Okay. Geological question. So the the driftless region and the driftless glacier area, like you were talking about, correct? Does that have anything to do with the spring creek? Like the, the fact that there's cold water there? Is that is that uh, connected in any way? Well, I think, you know, every time we go to any any river stream, uh, spring creek, anything, it's a reflection of, of uh, its environment geologically. Um, they, uh, they are a result of their watershed. And if you have a, a larger river, like a West River, Madison, or some of those, they're, they've collected a lot of small tributaries. Uh, there may be some spring creeks that drain into those. Um, but uh, the spring creeks then in my area, uh, and most spring creeks uh, in general, uh, come from, you know, from a ground source, underground source, that uh, the temperature is a, is a little more consistent throughout the, the year, although the, the character of the stream will change according to the climate season. I think uh, uh, most spring creeks share that common feature. Okay, that makes sense. Let's talk about approaching the water, approaching these spring creeks, because like you said, a lot of the things that you take to the driftless region are applicable to a big river. I wonder if you could talk a little bit about some of the scientific approach you take to the environment and observation and those types of things. Uh, you mentioned water temperature and just some of the things that you observe and get into the specifics of what does that mean beyond, you know, the fluctuation of temperatures can change the, where the fish are, things like that. Like how, how would that affect things and how would the the sky cover affect things and i understand that's kind of an infinite answerable question that <laughs> everything changes but i think there's probably some rules of thumb that you might have that you could share well it's it's, it's interesting it, it, your comment on observation brings to mind uh, uh a, a charlie mack and some of his work uh, in fly fishing and you know his uh, pioneering work in what he calls synchronicity, um, the timing of things. And uh, rather than looking at a calendar and deciding the Hendrickson's or the sulfurs uh, or the, the green drakes, if you're out that way, uh, wherever they hatch, you know, rather than timing things like that by calendar, he would look at the blooming of water lilies along the shore or the appearance of berries um, on the wild raspberries. And, and he noticed the synchronization events um, that, that would occur. And he would have guides call up and tell, hey, you know, the water lilies are blooming as time to head to the river. <laughs> Stuff like that. And so just being a student of nature, a student of the sport, keeping your eyes open, being observant, and then noting things like that, noting things like changing sky cover in uh, available light and knowing a little bit about the, the trout that you're pursuing and, and uh, how their eyesight is affected in, in low light or bright light conditions and and uh, just knowing their their rhythms and getting in sync with that. And I think that's going to make you a better angler. I think that's a really fascinating point that you make and it seems obvious when you say it because the trout don't know that it's june 28th right they don't know that it, oh it's june 28th and the hatch i'm supposed i'm supposed to eat on the surface now because 
that's when the hatch is right. And it's, right. it's a, na- it's nature and it's an ecosystem yeah. and it's, and nature is flexible, right? And it's changing right. every year is different. You know, one year you get a lot of snow, one year you don't get much. And, um, even those are big cycles, but then even down to, like you said, in your region where even during the day, the temperatures can rise and, and fall and, and clouds can come in, it can rain, all those things. That's nature, man. And there's no, there's no predicting that, uh, to a large extent. You're right. But I mean, think of the, maybe the last few times that you, uh, went fishing. Uh, my, my fishing trip starts as soon as I start the car and I'm driving to the stream or wherever I'm going to fish. Um, I, my eyes are open, you know, looking for birds. I'm watching, uh, roadside squirrels and, and woodchucks and, that type of thing. And, and if I get out of the car at the stream and there's a lot of bird activity and there's uh, a lot of, of uh, you know, bird calls and I see squirrels scrambling around and uh, woodchucks and, and chipmunks and stuff like that, there's a lot of activity, a lot of rabbits around. Uh, I, I know that usually um, there's going to be a good day of fishing as well. Just knowing the, the synchronization of activity, even if it's a land or uh, animal or bird or a fish, they all they all kind of respond to the same rhythms in nature. And, and I think knowing that and being observant of that, and I think that uh, that's that's one more step on that journey to being that complete angler. Oh yeah, and that's what I was saying. I totally agree. I think it's more important for me to look at things like flowers blooming and and the other things that happen. Like if, if I'm observant of when a hatch happens, what's going on in nature around it besides the calendar, then I would be able to identify that out independent of the calendar, if that makes sense, you know. Yeah, how many times have you been alerted to a hatch by the swallows that are darting through the air over the stream? You know, yeah. just not just looking down, but look up. You know, look up and see what's happening around you. And, and uh, I think all of that just, just you know, it's just one more stepping stone on that journey okay well let's get specific temperatures how do temperatures affect trout behavior and how you're going to fish for trout well we can kind of use the two extremes cold water and warm water um in in winter conditions um the trout's priorities change um in the summer conditions they're focused on on three things, you know, uh, they, they really want, uh, when they evaluate a feeding line, they're looking at three specific things, the availability of food, the current to bring that food to them, unless they're larger, deciduous, meat-eating trout. Um, so number two is they need that current differential. Number three, they need safety and protection in their feeding position. They don't want to become a meal while they're trying to get a meal. So those three things are ranked in that order, food, current, and um, safety. Uh, in the winter, the amount of food in the stream is much less anyway, and they're more worried about surviving the winter than they are getting fat. They actually lose body mass and body index in the, in the winter, and uh, there's more winter kill as a result of that. So number one becomes um, completely different. Their first priority is much different from where it was in the summer. Their first priority is to, to live. So safety is first. They're looking for safety in their positions. They'll take food when it's available. You know, they, they want much less current, though, to fight. So of those three things, um, um, safety is number one. 
and uh, uh, food availability and current um, are two and three. Um, they want less current to fight because that's energy consumption. So they're they're in an energy conservation mode. So you're going to find them in entirely different positions um, in the stream. Um, they're going to be maybe closer to some warmer water inputs. If there's a, a, a tributary that's bringing in three or four degree warmer temperature, they're going to be collecting around that. Um, and they're going to be in slower, deeper uh, positions. They'll still eat. They'll still take food. Uh, but in the hatchery environment, um, we have to usually cut hatchery rations by one, uh, two, one quarter or one third of what they are in the summer. If you overfeed trout in cold water, the food actually rots in the slow digestive uh, tract and uh, it will actually kill the cow if you overfeed them. So uh, essentially, their priorities completely change. As that water temperature creeps up into the low 50s, they'll, they'll switch from a cold water type of behavior and location to warm water um, uh, types of feeding patterns. They'll move into more aggressive lines. They'll take more risks. Um, they'll be in shallower, more exposed uh, positions uh, because the food availability is there. If the food is there, that's where they'll be, even though they're maybe a little more risky in that position. So fishing, you know, in the middle of, of uh, winter where the water temperatures are 42, uh, fishing in these shallow, thin riffles is not necessarily where you're going to find the fish. Um, they're not going to take that risk to be in an exposed position. Um, they're going to be uh, in, a, in a deeper, slower uh, type of, of water. Um, but in the summer, when that water temperature starts to break uh, into the mid-50s and above, boy, they're going to move up, uh, follow the food, and that's where you're going to find it. And I would imagine the same kind of plays true as the water temperature rises too much, right? As the right. temperatures get into the high 60s, now they become more more lethargic and more, you know, less likely. They do. There's some species differences in that. Um, rock cod can tolerate uh, a little bit warmer water than, say, brook cod, the two kind of extremes in, in trout. Uh, but yeah, you're right. Um, we, we always say, Trout are cold-blooded, um, which is truly the biological term is ectothermic, but my dad always called them cold-blooded. And so it raised in my mind the thought that trout are indifferent to temperature, and that's not true at all. Um, they don't shiver or sweat to change and to respond to changes in temperature, but they, what they do um, is just as dramatic. They, they will change completely their location and their patterns. And, um, they're very responsive, very sensitive to temperature changes. Is there any consideration to the air temperature when you when you're fishing and how to, how that would affect how you would fish? I mean, water temperature, I understand, is directly related to the fish and their environment. But does the does the air temperature just clue you into like, hey, I need to pay more attention to the water temperature, or is there any direct help in looking at the air temperature? <laughs> what is really cold? I'll put a coat on. <laughs> <laughs> that's science that's it that's hard science right there when, it, when it's hot <laughs> I, I sweat and i'll take my shirt off uh maybe fish is yes but no i mean no it doesn't other than the fact that um you know uh i think it's it's more uh in our own comfort um the stream response completely different and it doesn't really pick up uh, that much uh there's not that much air exchange between air and water directly it's more you know, radiation, 
the solar effect, um, the sun penetrating through the water, warming the stream bed, warming the water directly, and then that stream uh, radiating all that heat back into outer space on clear nights. Those are the more more substantial uh, thermal activities in stream. Well, that was my next question. Can we talk? Can you talk specific about sky cover? And and how that plays into your your scientific approach to fishing and, and looking for trout. You mentioned a little bit of, of that. Yeah, well, we talk about uh, those three things that trout need um, in what order they are, depending on the water temperature, food, current, and, and uh, safety and protection. It's uh, it's uh, safety and protection that really determines the confidence that trout have in their position. If they feel very, very safe and invulnerable and uh, unexposed, then you uh, you say they're feeding with high confidence or in a high confident position. When they feel naked and afraid and exposed and vulnerable, they are in a low confident position. So anything that changes the trout's level of confidence uh, is going to affect how approachable they are, how spooky they are in, in Things like overhead protection from, from predators, um, bushes and trees and, and low-hanging um, streamside uh, vegetation, or overcast thick skies also raise the confidence of, of fish. And uh, you know, reading that situation, reading the water and the environment, is not only tells you how to fish uh, and where to fish, but it tells you how uh, approachable those fish are and what methods you should use. If fish are in low confident water, you better not splash a 3x seven foot meter on them. Um, with a large fly, they're just going to take off, or a large fly and strike indicator, they're going to take off. They're, they're not going to tolerate it. Um, whereas if they're in a higher confident position, um, you can get away with more. Um, so uh, spring creeks, again, I think are loaded with uh, a lot of uh, low confident lies, and um, it teaches you to really respect that. How about sun angle and, and things like that? Is it just a matter of shadows, or is there other things that you that you look at with sun? And yeah, I do. It, you know, it affects it. Um, the angle of the sun is uh, is a real big determinant in, in eating behavior of trout. I think in low light conditions, they um, they feed with a little more confidence. I think um, they feel a little bit less vulnerable. They like shade especially on warm days, that's a great place to look for trout is, uh, is along shady banks. But I think angle of the sun is big. You just have to watch and be mindful of your own shadow. If your own shadow is falling right across where you're fishing, then you're, you're going to uh, spook some fish. How about clarity, water clarity? You bet. How does that play into your approach? Well, I usually, like, in stained water, I usually will use, uh, accentuate contrast in stained water, uh, and I'll match the uh, fly with the color of the water. If I'm fishing a brown-stained, muddy water, um, I'll usually fish uh, something that has uh, maybe brown or tan as a predominant color, and then I'll fish, uh, like, a real hot, fluorescent hot spot on it, like, a, I'm thinking of a, of a scud with a bright high visibility deed in the middle um, or something along those lines if it's a green color shift maybe i've got some some a lot of aquatic vegetation or, or uh, 
items or algae in the water, something like that, that's giving it a green shift. I'll usually use uh, black and, and uh, chartreuse or something like that. So it does affect color. But again, color uh, is, uh, if we look at trout as a predator, predators have uh, four different criteria that they use to evaluate um, something as being edible or inedible. And it's uh, the size is number one. Uh, shape and profile and proportion and number two, number three is color, number four is animation. So of those uh, four, color is called a close range determinant. They can't see color accurately until they're relatively close to something. And uh, size and shape and proportion, they can see from a great distance. It's like you can tell a... Uh, a uh, Volkswagen Beetle from a suburban from two miles away down the road. They can see something. Or a MiG 21 from a MiG 20. <laughs> well, maybe you can. That's Viz Recce. That's Viz Recce, Jason. Viz right Record. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. We should have that term, Viz Recce. I like that. Viz Recce. You got to do your Viz Recce slides that in the mass brief. That's it. You know what? But they can see that from a long ways off. But I'll tell you what, you can't tell a, 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 a green suburban from a blue suburban from a black suburban until you're maybe 200 yards away. Yeah, okay, that makes a lot of sense. Color is a short-range determinant. It is for trout, too. So if you have a, a, a fish that comes up underneath your fly and looks at it just to within six inches or a foot from it and then turns away, don't change your size or shape or your flight, it's a color refusal. Close range refusals are based on color. You know, but if that fish never looked at your fly and, and you fished, you, you floated that fly over his head 10 times and he never moved from three feet of water, he's still on the bottom, never looked at your fly, don't bother with color. <laughs> it's not a color thing. You've got either the wrong fly or the size or shape or wrong. Colors are close refusals. The others are more, uh, longer reach determinants. That makes sense? That makes a lot of sense. And uh, that is science in, in effect. That is something that I will take away. And I really appreciate that. That's going to be highlighted on the show, the, the close range refusal. <laughs> okay. Well, that's, that's going back to my, my trout biology and, and veterinary background. Oh, that's it great. I love might it. Be a little, might be a little too geeky. Uh, no, <laughs> I told you at the beginning, Jason, that's what I wanted to do. And that's what we're doing. And I'm loving it. So, I mean, I think those three things are, are good and we can move on a little bit, but I just, I, I think about that. And as an example, you can say, you know, okay, it's the water temperatures are in the low 60s. It's a sunny day, but the water is a little more stained because it, it rained earlier in the day or something like that, right? It's a little darker. Right. And so, and then that you can take that and say, okay, so it's not a hundred percent like if this, then that, but mm-hmm. the trout are they're not going to be in holding as, as deep a water. Probably they might be up a little bit more confident. Um, but the sun is out. They don't have that cloud cover. So maybe I'm looking for shade or under overhangs and, um, and I'm going to fish a darker fly. I mean, that, that that's not the answer to the, the, the problem, but that's a start, yeah, right? That's a, that's, that's a, a I looked yeah. at it. I looked at it and I said, okay, yeah. here's some, here's some factors and I'm going to deal with them this way and you can start to make adjustments. And that's, that's what I was getting at. And I really appreciate you sharing that because that is helpful because people can take that and say, all right, 
here's some here's some ways I can deal with these different environmental conditions. Yeah, it might not be the right conclusion, but it's a process that matters because if you get the wrong conclusion and you say, okay, well, this this leads me to believe I should put on this fly and fish it here, and if it didn't work out, then you say, okay, well, then maybe this is the situation, and it makes it, you, you go down a different path and it works. Well, now you're establishing that pattern of success, but it's all problem solving, but the process is, is what's the most important thing. Okay. I said we were going to move on, but is there anything else that you want to bring up with the Driftless region or just your scientific approach to it and, and what we've been talking about? <laughs> no, I think that's it. That's fair enough. You want to talk a little bit about presentation now? We've, I, w- I want to talk about the, some of the techniques and tactics and your approach to the actual presentation to fish now that we've talked about the environment. And uh, I wonder... Are, are there any uni- universal rules that you apply to different f- fly types? Like, hey, whether it's dry or streamer or nymph, like these these presentation rules keep in mind. Absolutely. I think there are some truisms, um, general truths anyway. Maybe not always. Uh, always is a hard word to use. Yeah. My belief is that you're going to catch more trout with the uh, with the wrong fly in the right presentation than you will with the perfect right fly that's presented wrong. So presentation trumps fly selection. It doesn't mean fly selection is not important. I know I have a lot of my tire friends that, that raise their eyebrows when I say that, but it's unless there's a specific event that's occurring, a hat or a spinnerfall or some other type of an event that focuses the trout's feeding. Uh, choices to one very narrow um, gray selection. Um, maybe it's a size 16 sulfur or something like that. Then you have to you have to be there with that. But the rest of the time, when trout are, are not tightly focused in their feeding uh, choice, uh, they they're feeding more indiscriminately on a wider range of food types. And then I think it's it's most applicable that you're going to catch more fish if with the presentation being foremost in your mind than fly selection less. And, you know, you see, I fall into the same habit. I mean, you just start pawing through your fly box and saying, oh, this one, this one, this one, or maybe this one, or maybe that one worked last time. And, but if you really focus on, uh, on your presentation, what you're doing with it, and uh, I think you'll, you'll find that that's going to be uh, a, a clearer route to success. If I'm doing something, whether it's dry fly fishing or dry dropper or nymph fishing or streamer fishing, any of those types of, of, uh, of fishing methods, if I haven't caught a fish in a little while, I start asking myself the question, why? And rather than changing flies, I'm going to change my presentation if I'm fishing a say, a size 16 parachute atoms, and they're just not taking a dendrit. Well, the next time through, I'll animate that. I'll add some little twitch or some little uh, pop to that, or the new fishing as well. I'll, I'll jig it. I'll move it. I'll swing it. I'll, I'll rise it. Uh, I'll do something different. Streamers, too. Instead of the, the stroke, stroke, stroke of our uh, retrieves, maybe I'll, I'll change that retrieve onto a pop pause, uh, I'll do something different in my presentation before I'll change Yes, I agree. Presentation has mattered more to me than fly selection. And I remember when I really got hardcore or militant or whatever, like when I really focused on presentation, my 
my numbers went up. I just, I, I, when I really took the time to do that, but I'll say, but I still think fly section is important. Like you said, because I've had times on the river when it is, it is the fly. It's not, you know, I'm presenting the same thing and then I change flies and all of a sudden it's like, oh my gosh, I'm catching a ton of fish and I'm presenting, I'm, I'm the same angler I was before and presenting the same way. But now with this, you know, a midge or a smaller fly, you know, I might have, I mean, I'm now I'm doing better. Yeah, that's true. But I think, I, I think that's going to be more likely to happen when, when the trout have a much more narrow feeding focus, they've got their focus finally uh, tuned onto one specific prey. Maybe it's a, you know, yeah. a, a mayfly nymph or something that they're seeing an abundance of and it's a favorite food. And, and during that time, you've got to have the right thing on. I think, yeah, I think that what you said that is most universal in that is the focus and focus on yourself. And that that is something that is true throughout whether it's a dry fly or a streamer or a nymph if you're if you're concerned about presentation it it goes without saying that you need to focus on it and i think people just i think myself included a lot of times just assume well that's the best i can do and i think when i've really pushed myself harder to to get a more natural drift change the angle that i'm presenting the fly at you know make the cast easier for myself give myself better odds of getting a better presentation uh, then that is when i'm most you know a lot of times more successful when i when i really yeah. do truly focus on it yeah but i think most guides or professional anglers, they use 10% of their flies in their box 90% of the time. Yeah. Okay. That's that's true of most of us. Uh, we have our, our confident flies, the flies we go to, the flies that work day in and day out, different rivers and streams. You know, those 10% those, uh, of the flies we use 90% of the time. But in that other 10% uh, of the time, you've got to have the right fly and we carry a whole bunch of extra flies for those specific situations when that's the only fly in the lead. Right. What do you think about size? You, you talked about color. Do you have a similar kind of uh, maxim for size of fly? Well, I, you know, I think again, it goes back to the four criteria that trout use to evaluate our fly against any other natural food uh, is that size uh, is, uh, is number one. Uh, if you're passing to a trout and he hasn't even given your trout your your fly a second look, then you probably if you have the right fly on, you probably have the wrong size. You know, and change size then, uh, or maybe you have the wrong fly on, that's possible too. But I think um, sometimes uh, it helps to to go large, and sometimes I think it helps to go small. You know, depending on uh, the circumstance. Um, I mean, how many times have you caught a a trout on a size 10 stimulator that's massive and doesn't really look like anything. And then there's times where the only thing <laughs> they'll take is a size 18 zebra manage, you know, or something like that. So I think you, it's hard to come up with generalisms uh, in, that, in that area. What are some other things that you think people need to think about when they're considering presentation? And I guess we can start with dry flies and maybe move on to your th- your three goals of nymphing, but is there is there a similar thing with dry flies? I think uh, I think sometimes we overlook um, the importance of our leaders, and I think 
a lot of times if we take a brand new commercial leader out of the pack and you know we've got a nine foot leader we tie our fly to it um, and I think that's not necessarily the best way of doing it but it's a common way of doing it I've done it as well but we're tying our fly to we think it's 5x but it's still very hard nylon it's the same nylon that is in the stiff upper butt section of that leader it's just been extruded to thin it out Whereas I think what we should really be doing is tying a few feet of a softer supple material between that commercial leader and our fly that allows that fly to have more liberty and freedom to move and navigate the small microcurrents in the stream to look like a natural free-floating insect. I think it gives it a better drift. I think simple things like that really matter. And uh, there's a lot of little things like that that we can do um, that by themselves, each one may not be monumental, but by making numerous simple adjustments like that, we'll see our catch rate double in the course of the day. Our presentation is better. Yeah, our, I think those longer leaders allow us more manipulation. I can lift that off of the water and, and really make that fly dance, uh, lengthening those leaders out, softening those leaders, the terminal part of that leader. Um, all those things are little things that will help catch more fish. I'm a big believer in that philosophy. And the, the <laughs> I think back to the combat search and rescue mission that we used to do. And this seems like this is off topic, but I, you know, that was such a complex mission. There was so many different assets in the air, on the ground, rotary, fixed wing frequencies, code words, all, all such a complex mission set that any, any little win, any little like organizational technique that you had to on your lineup card on your knee or how you were going to use the grease on the canopy, if any system that you could have, however small it might be, those small things start to, to allow you to have higher essay because you've simplified, you've simplified all the things that you could simplify and it frees your brain up to, to handle the changing environment and the, and the tactical scenario as it's as it's coming at you because you don't have time to remember oh was that frequency um red two or gold five like what was the that's right you don't have you don't have time for that man you gotta so i've always i've always found value in what you're describing the little the little wins that you can take and it doesn't seem that big a deal like oh yeah put on this tippet or or you know pay attention to the environment or check the winds when you're driving in the car, all those things that you've oh, mentioned yeah. are these little tiny winds that, that add up to build your essay, I think on the river yeah. as well. Success is the sum of a lot of little things, you know, <laughs> and, and, you know, it's just putting the slack, you know, when you cast your fly out, they're putting the slack where you want the slack in your, in your rig. You want that slack to be within two feet of the fly. So that fly has no liberty to move. You don't want slack, you know, in the mid part of your leader. And all leaders collapse. They all have a, a, a point where they, they are very inefficient in the transfer of energy through the equipment cast. And usually that's in the taper. And so there's a lot of new philosophies in, in leader design and how to use leaders, um, commercial leaders, when you make your own, whatever it is. But we can control um, where that leader will collapse. And we can put that slack, that little extra slack right by the fly, which is what we work on. Yeah, I was just on the Beaverhead uh, a few days ago, and it was really cool. I went with my father and my brother, which is 
typical. We do that once or twice a year, but this was the first year I took my son. And so it was special for us to, to have him out there. It was super special for my father. But we had a guide for the first day. My brother and my dad hadn't got there yet with the drift boat. So it was just me and my son. And I was like, well, let's go out. Let's see how this goes. And one of the things that he mentioned, similar, I think, to what you're saying, which is he was really encouraging me to use the pile cast to, to mm-hmm. really get that leader to kind of pile up, to give it that kind of freedom of, not freedom of motion, but, you know, to allow it to drift naturally, I guess. And and when we did that, we had more success on very picky trout that were kind of eating in their own little teacup. And if it wasn't right there, you know, it didn't look right and the timing wasn't right, it wasn't really, wasn't really going to happen. But if it did, it was awesome. Yeah, you're lucky to be able to fish with your family like that. That's a real blessing. Oh yeah, it is. Uh, I'm so grateful for it every 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 chance I get, and certainly being in Utah now with my son has been very special for sure. Are there any other easy wins that you can that you can say with presentation before we move on to kind of nymphs and the three goals of nymphing? Yeah, I think just keep in mind that whatever is not working, change. Too often we just get into that habit of recast, recast, recast. Well, I mean, if it's not working, try something different. I think we, we get lost in the, in the I think, in the, in the moment sometimes. And so, I mean, if, it's not, if you're not catching a fish, I usually set the mark, you know, 15, 20 minutes. I like to be catching a fish uh, in my water area. We've got a, a, a good population. So, but, you know, maybe a little more ambitious than in some other um, watersheds but uh, in ours I think 15 minutes is is, uh, is normal if I'm not catching something here and there you know, as I go I'm starting to change something right and it's not necessarily the fly like you said not before. always it's- not always not unless their size 18 tribe goes overhead <laughs> <laughs> yeah that's fair well I wanted to talk to you about nymphing and we talked a little bit before the show about the three goals of nymphing and the things that you keep in mind when you're nymphing. And this is going to get into more presentation as well, but I'm loving this tactics. I'm loving these techniques and, and this tactical discussion. So I thought we could keep it going in that direction. Oh, you bet. You bet. Nymphing is, I'm a passionate nymph angler. I love all forms of nymph fishing. And I think becoming a better nymph angler uh, is really a road to success as well. We all like to be there for the drive-by hatch or spinnerfall and, and those are magic moments i love them too and i love to fish drive the dry droppers so I, I enjoy that a lot but day in and day out uh, i catch a lot more fish while i'm in fishing than, than any other method just because that's the nature of the game you know there's more subsurface feeding by trout than there is uh, feeding on the surface so understanding that and, and applying yourself to become a better nymph angler i think is uh, is really going to really help your catch rate. Uh, but the three goals of nymph fishing, obviously, um, goal number one is you've got to get your trout or your flies to the level uh, where the trout are feeding. Um, and that changes in water type too. In fast current, that might be the bottom 20% of the water column. They may be hugging the bottom underneath that current thread feeding. They're still feeding down there. But you've got to get your flies down there. And then if it's slower moving water, that, uh, as that water slows, the strike zone opens up. And in slower moving water, I usually go from top to bottom, uh, from the bottom to the surface of the stream. And so uh, that, that affects everything. 
it affects uh, the fly selection as far as weight. What, what weight do I need to get the, uh, in that fly to, to reach the trout? Um, it also affects rigging, where I put my heavier fly in a two-fly rig, is dependent on the, on the strike zone. The strike zone is narrow and compressed in the bottom of fast water and opens up uh, in slower water. So everything changes based on the strike zone, based on goal number one, because we have to reach those trout to, to catch them. Goal number two is we we really uh, need to have a natural presentation. We all understand the importance of dead drift uh, for dry flies, but it's also true in fishing as well. You know, understanding the, the nature of the water column helps um, uh, because if we go from top to bottom, you uh, go through the fastest layers of current um, you know, in between the top and mid-depth, and then closer to the bottom, that water uh, speed slows dramatically. So the bottom 20% of the water column in medium and faster moving water is moving at half speed relative to the mid-depth, right, Um, because of friction. And so essentially we have the same old arch enemy in mid-fishing that we had in dry uh, dry fly fishing, which is drag. When we try to cross fast water to drift our flies in slow water, we have drag. And so you have to be aware of that while nymph fishing. You have to adjust for that. Uh, that drag is going to want to sweep your flies uh, downriver quickly, and it's going to pull your flies up out of the strike zone in mid-current and accelerate them and spoil your presentation. So having a good presentation for nymph fishing means having your flies drift at the appropriate speed for the strike zone. And if that's fast water, that means you gotta slow your drift down, you know, to get that that, uh, uh, natural uh, drag-free drift. So if the the food that trout are feeding on is moving at half speed near the bottom, then nearby have gotta move at that same speed. And that's, uh, that's a challenge sometimes. And goal number three, then, is having a more accurate and sensitive and reliable uh, means of strike those three goals if you meet those three goals then all right let's get into some techniques you mentioned the weight on the two fly rig what are some things that you consider are some techniques that you use to get the fly in front of the fish and what i'm thinking about immediately what i'm thinking about is kind of my decision between dry dropper or if I'm going to put a tag fly above my weighted fly or, or drop shot or something like that, how, how do you go about deciding um, or experimenting on the river with that, putting the fly in front of the fish? Just a couple techniques that you might have. Doesn't Not all encompassing, just a few things. Well, I think dry dropper works in certain water types, in water speeds and, and uh, in situations. Um, it doesn't work in every situation uh, because you're really trying to imitate um, a bug that's floating on the surface, moving at the fastest speed, more or less, of that current. Uh, and then you're trail, trailing a fly below that that's uh, you're expecting to move at a natural half speed. Um, so. I, I don't usually fish dry dropper where I'm trying to, to cover that current differential. It doesn't really work that well. So whenever there's, a, there's an expectation for me to fish through a large or against the large current differential, I won't use dry dropper. Yeah, you're not going to put like a, a dropper on with a, a, a five. With a check nib. 
Yeah, don't put a dry fly in a tech nimfly because you're asking those two flies to do two separate things. And so that's not, they're going to be competing uh, one against the other. So I choose my water. I do dry dropper a lot, but usually I'll, I'll fish a small, lightweighted dropper that's more uh, at mid depth, not trying to, to pierce fast water to keep that, that uh, dropper in, in the slower water. Uh, at the bottom. So, I mean, I choose my, my situations well, and I rig differently than most people do. I, I rig my dry dropper from a tag. Uh, my dry, dry fly will be off a tag, six-inch tag, and, and uh, then my dropper will be whatever appropriate length is below that. Um, and what I can, I, it just allows me a lot more animation um, opportunities with that. So dry dropper, you know, is really great. I use it a lot. It, it's, uh, it's based on, you know, the right circumstance it's great you know like if you're picking little small areas or picking pockets through you know from a drift boat or something like that especially with those long leaders um, but i do rig them up differently i do rig my dry fly off of a, of a tag so that i can do a lot more i can do a lot more manipulation and animation plus i think it gives you a more natural appearance to that to that dry fly because if you have that uh dry fly fixed by the hook uh, eye and also by the bend of the, of the hook for a dropper, I think it restricts the liberty and movement of that fly. So I like, um, I pick up stripes, I think, uh, um, when a fish takes a dropper that might be a little more subtle. Maybe the fly rotates a little bit, my dry fly rotates or just twitches slightly. That if I had uh, attached my dropper to the hook shank and that dry fly might have missed that stripe. So I think it's, it's a little more sensitive. It's like having a little more sensitive antenna on your dry fly. So I always uh, tag my dry flies and then uh, have the dropper then uh, at the knot or tip of rig split. Um, but I mean, when I'm fishing two fly rigs in a uh, pure nymphing environment, uh, my heavier um, fly or an anchor fly uh, in fast water would be an upper dropper. And then my point fly would be a less weighted fly or similarly or less weighted fly um, trailing um, because that, that upper dropper then will pull both flies um, beneath the current into the strike zone. And then when I fish medium and slower water, then I'll cut off that heavier dropper and put a less or lightly weighted or unweighted fly as my tag then. Um, and if I'm tight to that, especially you're a nymph and you're always tight to your heavier fly, right? So let's say using your nymphing as an example, then in fast water, my upper dropper is my heavy fly to pull both flies beneath uh, the current and into the strike zone. In slower moving water, my heavier fly will be usually my point fly um, in medium and slower moving water because if I'm tight to that, that means my upper dropper is mid-depth, but because the strike zone opens up in medium and slower moving water from top to bottom, I'm still covering the strike zone in those situations. Okay, yeah, that makes so a lot of sense. sense. And I can make that change. I can make that change by moving to, by changing one fly. I'm fishing fast water. I've got a, a, a very lightly weighted um, fly at my point. I've got my heavier anchor fly and my upper dropper. Both flies are beneath the current uh, in the strike zone. So when I go to medium or slower water, I cut that heavy uh, upper dropper off, put an unweighted fly, and now I'm tight to my, my point fly, and I've covered the strike zone by, in both situations merely by changing one fly. Now, okay, that makes a lot of sense. 
why does the why doesn't it work if your point fly is heavier and faster water? Because doesn't that also drag it down or just not as well or not with as much movement from the tag fly? Does that Well that's a good question, but if you think about it, and I use your thing as an example, if if you you're always tight to your weighted fly. Mm-hmm. Okay, when you're when you're lifting and tracking yeah, that yep. grip, you I'm in contact tight. with that. You are in contact with the heavier fly. Now, if I'm in fast water and my point fly is my heavy fly and it's on the bottom and I'm contact to it, and it's a direct linear connection, you know, coming through the surface of the water, where does that be my upper drop? Mid current. Yeah, yeah. Mid current, and that's not where the fish are. Ah, uh, because of the the water. The yeah, 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 yeah. The strike zone's on the bottom. I want both flies at the bottom, ideally. Doesn't mean they won't chase something up there once in a while. Oh no, yeah, and I get it. We're not talking in absolutes, but you're saying I'm just I'm looking at the water. It's really fast. Yeah. They're not going to be up in the middle. They're more likely yeah. to be down below. That's it. Yeah, so yeah, I want yeah. both flies down below. So I want my my anchor fly, heavier fly, has got to be the upper dropper for me. I mean, I get different opinion, but this is the way I think most of us do it. Um, and then when I change, uh, you know, then I'm gonna I'm gonna uh, change the position to heavier fly. Oh, uh, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, yeah. I mean, good. little things like that. Understanding the science though, of it is is a foundation for me of all the decisions I, I, I really make. That and, and time and experience on the water is really, um, yeah, I think, really the cornerstones of, of good angling. But knowing the, the character of the strikes of how it changes in yeah. fast and, and, and slower water, and knowing I have to break to cover the strike zone, it, 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 everything based on that. This conversation is reminding me of a instructor I had who used to say, you need to know what you don't know so you can know that. <laughs> That's true. Oh, I'll tell you, that, that, that brings to mind one of my, my, uh, one of my most beloved mentors, Lefty Craig. You know, when I, he helped me so much, you know, as I was getting, uh, you know, aware and, and, and growing in sport. And, and uh, if I ever got to the point where, where he felt I was starting to think I knew something, <laughs> he would say, you don't, you don't know what you don't know. And I would say, okay, That's that right. makes sense. How can you know what you don't know? But what he was really saying is, you have no idea how much you don't know. <laughs> <laughs> I remember yeah, the yeah. First, one of the first shows that I ever uh, appeared at with him, and we, we, we became so close over the years as well, and, and uh, he watched me on the casting pod. I was doing a demonstration, and this is really early on, and, and uh Afterwards, he and I think Ed Jabarowski were standing there watching me with their arms folded um, in the background. And after I did my casting demonstration, left me in a very kind voice, put his hand on my shoulder and said, Jason, if you're going to do this, you, you've got to learn how to cast. <laughs> uh, keeps you humble. Keeps you humble. Yeah. Well, that's what we need, right? I mean, that's yeah. great. Uh, all right. Well, let's get back to tactics. So rigging is one way you're going to get the fly in front of their face. Is there, do you ever use split shot or is there other things that you think about as far as like, um, well, I was talking to my brother about this on that, on this trip on the beaver head, because when you talk about the dry fly, you, you said drag is still the, your problem is still drag, right? But it's, it's harder now because it's underwater. And one of the things that I struggle with sometimes and and we were talking about my brother and I 
is you think you're going to fish this water. And we understand the concept of, you know, the strike zone and, and fish lower in the water column, although not to the extent that you're talking about different speeds. And I understand that a lot better now, but you know, you cast upstream, but you got to think like, when is your fly actually, you know, you're, so your, your line is in the water and it's going through, but when is it actually in the strike zone? It's easy to tell. Um, we call them readable indicators, but there are certain types of uh, products that will, will give you feedback on the quality of your drift when you reach the strike zone. And I think moving away from these large plastic indicators is a first step towards improving your um, your feedback on the quality of your drift. I think oftentimes we're using these Christmas tree, Christmas ornament size strike indicators that large surface area then, again, keep in mind that's a very large surface area attached to the fastest flowing water. It's going to be really hard to get a good drift speed out of that anyway. Your supplies may never reach the strike zone with something that large that's accelerating that drift. So I always... Because it's pulling it. Because it's pulling it. It's hard to slow it down, you know, and so... I'll always use the smallest uh, floating strike indicator I can get away with, but I use uh, one of my favorites. Uh, I, I use a lot of yarn indicators. I like the New Zealand style strike indicator. Uh, I don't know if you're familiar with that one, but it's got a tiny tuft of yarn um, that um, uh, it has a very small footprint, so it's very sensitive, very easy to read. And so when you cast that out, that small flame of yarn, that, that little upright uh, uh, feather-like uh, bit of yarn that comes out of that tubing, it will land over to the side. It'll land at about a 45-degree angle. But as your flies descend in the water column, as soon as you get tight to the, to the strike indicator, as soon as the flies uh, descend and are now tight to the strike indicator, it stands straight up. Okay, that's telling you you have contact with your flies. When those flies descend further, reach the strike zone, you'll see a tiny weight coming off of that because it has such a small footprint that when your flies reach the strike zone and they begin tracking at the speed relative to the strike zone, which is slower, you will see your flotation device will slow down. Even with plastics, you can see it. You'll notice that it's, it's uh, unless it's real heavy, fast water that's rippling, you can't see it on the surface. But if you're in relatively... Um, current but but not fast current you'll actually see the the strike indicator will sink a little bit and it will slow it will slow slightly but you oftentimes miss it because it's so large um, and, the, and the results are not that profound but the smaller the strike indicator the more readable it is and it will tell you exactly when you're reaching those three balls yeah and if you're talking about a 50 percent difference between the top and the bottom potentially right. then you're gonna you should you should be able to notice that, especially with experience. Yeah. You should be able to see, yeah. okay, it's it's slowed down. Do you have problems with that type of indicator in rough water, like staying above? Because to be honest, I I you know, I'll fish bigger indicators sometimes because you know I just a, a smaller indicator is just not going to float for me. You're right. You're right. It's it's uh, there's always uh, a preferred method, I think, um, based on the water. But if I'm fishing real, real heavy, thick water with broken surface, I'm not going to use a flotation device anyway. I'm going to use yeah. high line, high sticking, euro nipping, something, because that's a high confident line. I can get really close to fish to use those short range tactics. And I have much more control over presentation, casting accuracy, everything's better at short range. So my philosophy is that. 
reading the water not only tells you where to fish, but how to fish. I, I just, that's the situation where I, unless I was fishing from a drift boat from 50 feet away in fat, fast, thick water, I would um, definitely not choose that as my method. But if I were fishing a strike indicator from 50 feet away in heavy water, I'd be mending it. Okay, and people mend so that they don't drag um, between them and the strike indicator, but you need to mend so that you have um, slack uh, uh, between the strike indicator and the flies. That means you have to pick up your strike indicator out of the water, bring it upstream to allow those flies to descend to the strike zone. So you have to mend below the strike indicator, the vertical mend. Yeah. To get rid of that drag, because right. like I said, it's it's easy to see that on the surface, but once you go down below, now you you can't see those mistakes as easily. So you have to be more. I think you have to be more intentional and habitual. I think you're right. You're right. And some of the first indicators that were readable were I don't know 20, 30 years ago, the old Raven float system that we used to use for steelhead. I mean, it would tell you when you had drag between you and the strike indicator, and it would indicate when you had drag between the strike indicator and the fly. It's a very, very cool system that just kind of has fallen out of uh, a lot of popular use, but it's very good, very readable, too. Yarn is, is one of the most readable indicators. And Dorsey, Matt Dorsey's uh, system, uh, very, very good uh, system. Small footprint, small devices. Uh, you don't need these big flotation inner tubes to float your flies. They, you don't need that much buoyancy. Uh, the balance rig is having, if you're going to strike in the gear, is having the minimal amount of, of flotation up on top uh, and then balance that against the weight of the flies to reach those three goals. Right, because I would think also you have a better chance of seeing that, that strike because there's less drag between, you know, there's less slack, there's less line right. between the indicator uh, and the fly. So there's there's... There's less uh, slop for the fish to, you know, grab it and let go and, and something like that. Reduces the delay in registering. That's, yeah, 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 yeah. All right. We talked, uh, how about the accurate, the third thing? We've talked a little bit about getting the fly in front of them, a little bit about natural presentation. Let's talk about accurate strike detection now. Well, probably on one extreme, you've got these really large flotation devices, plastic devices um, that are very insensitive and have a lot of inherent delay in registering the strike. Those are probably um, the least accurate, least sensitive in the position in a situation where you lose or miss the most fish. At the other end of the extreme, you know, you've got, um, you know, high sticking or uranymphing or even a small yarn indicator that really reduces the amount of uh, slack uh, between you and apply that improved connectivity helps accuracy and sensitivity and i think um you know it's a balance it doesn't mean i never use large flotation devices i just pick the opportunity it's usually based on uh, nothing else will work in that situation maybe at the drift boat i have to establish a drift from 50 feet away and you're not going to high stick from that distance so in those situations then yeah, you have to use that plastic. Or if I want to reach across the river and put a drifting along the far bank and it's too far away to do anything else, yeah, a, a plastic device will do that. But I'll mend it. I'll be improving that presentation instead of uh, having the flies trailing uh, behind the strike indicator at mid-depth. If I 
lifts that strike indicator up out of the water, bringing a foot or two above um, upstream. That will allow the slack to, uh, at liberty for those flies to descend, engage a strike zone, and establish another period of dead free drift before I have to mend again. Just like mending your dry fly, you're always mending it to, uh, to uh, improve presentation. You have to, you have to mend flotation devices a little more frequently than other methods of dead fishing. And I would think below that, if you did have a bigger indicator, like you're saying, you would want something that is going to cut through that water better, you know, a, a lighter. Right. Yeah. Tip thinner tippet. Yeah. Yeah. Thin to win. Thin to win. That's the new mantra too, is the thinner material. Why does that work? It cuts through the current more effectively than thicker material. And, you know, a lot of the things we're discussing, um, you know, we, we did a, a book maybe six years ago that was a corroborative effort between a lot of great nymph anglers and uh, I collected and organized and wrote the book, but it was a contribution from many, many people like Joe Humphreys and oh, George Daniel, Ed Angle, Lefty, and uh, Jagorowski. A lot of people contributed to this book and it made it a really, really uh, a good a good quality book because of, uh, of the experts that, uh, that put into it. It's called Nymph Masters. Fly fishing secrets from net expert anglers and a lot of the stuff, even the basic science and, and the hydrology stuff, um, is well illustrated in that book. And sometimes it's hard to, to bring to mind the things that we're talking about, but there's a lot of illustrations in there that if somebody really wants to dig into this deeper, that book would be a great resource. Well, we'll definitely link to that in the show notes so people can look at that and dig deeper because that's, I think, a lot of people listening are the type of people that do like to, to dig deeper. If I can see something myself, I hope you learn better. It's hard to describe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I think you're doing a great job of describing it as well. So don't uh, sell yourself short. I want to start wrapping it up, but is there anything else that you want to bring up about presentation and nymphing? Um, you know, just time on the water. Get out there and do it. Even if you've just got an hour to fish or a half hour, you know, there's a lot of times that's all I have to, you know, but just getting out there and, and keeping your eyes open, you know, observe um, and, and recognize patterns and, and uh, that type of thing. And, and I just continue to love and, and grow on the sport. Sounds good. Jason, before I ask you my last question, how can people find out more about you? find some of your other articles or, or books that you've written or uh, anything else that you might be excited about moving forward or schedule a trip with you if, if that's something that you want to share as well. Well, I do a lot of appearances. I'm at a lot of the national fly fishing show, um, you know, in different places, different locations. Uh, you can certainly hit me on social media, uh, especially if you have a question or a comment or I love to see fish photos too. So if you want to send me fish photos and, and uh, that thing, that's always good too. Fish form, you know, I love, I love uh, looking at them. So you can hit me on Instagram uh, at Jason Randall Fly Fishing. I'm on Facebook as well, and uh, I try to respond to to anything. If you have a question or a query or share a, an idea, I, I love to learn as well. So uh, please feel free to do that. Uh, all the books uh, I've got four books are all on Amazon as well. If you uh, just search. Uh, uh, my name is author uh, and fly fishing you'll get to them and we can certainly link them in, in the program notes as well and yeah uh, definitely if you're if you're at the shows or uh, any of the other events hey come up and say hi and uh, i'd love to talk about fly fishing there's no website i do i do have jr fly fishing 
uh, is my website. Okay. We'll link to all that stuff in the show notes so people can follow you and um, reach out and learn more. So appreciate you sharing that as well. Last question. Ready? Ready. If you could go back to when you first started fly fishing, Jason, and give yourself two pieces of advice, one more tactical and one more philosophical, what would you tell yourself to help you progress as a fly fisher? I think it's, you know, it's, it's a, the type of a sport and pursuit where you're, you're never going to really master it and, and just understand that it's a process constantly bring that curiosity and, and uh, sense of wonder uh, to their sport is really a great a great thing uh, it's blessed to be able to do that so that would be I guess kind of my technical and philosophy uh, quote and, and then uh, again all, all joking aside uh, learning how to cast and stuff but just learn the techniques practice uh, I think taking the attitude that this is a sport, not just a leisure pursuit or hobby. It is all of that too, but bring that mentality to your fly fishing that an athlete brings to their craft. It is a craft to be learned. It is something to, to grow and, and, and strive for perfection, but we all see the game-winning free throw uh, with zero time on the clock uh, for the professional athlete. We didn't see 10,000 free throws they shot in the gym to get to that point. And so go out in the backyard and, and for 30 minutes, four times a week, for four weeks, cast. And you'll be amazed at what that will do the next time you visit the river. And that's what, what really, really good anglers do. They practice. Uh, they go to the river to practice. And so when I go to the river, I want that cast to go where I intended to. I want that presentation to be just right. I don't want to just mindlessly recreate the same mistakes. Um, if I do that, then the fish come as a bonus. Uh, if I focus on technique, the fish are a bonus. That's good advice. I appreciate you sharing that. Jason, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I love uh, where we went with the tactics and the science and, and getting into it. And I appreciate your patience with me just digging deeper and digging <laughs> deeper. So, yeah, I really had a great time. It was great. I enjoyed it. Thanks for being on the show. And uh, I wish you well moving forward. Thanks. You too. Thanks for listening to the Wade Out There Fly Fishing Podcast. You can learn more about some of the topics we discussed in today's episode show notes. For more fly fishing ideas, stories, and artwork, check out my blog and online gallery at wadeoutthere.com. If you want to make Wade Out There a part of your own fly fishing journey, please subscribe and share. Until next time, Wade Out There.